everyone so welcome back to another black create connect podcast episode where your favorites okay black female hosts i'm telling you that right business hosts speak to some of the most incredible black entrepreneurs leaders change makers trailblazers from all over the world and today i have with me a big time change maker we're talking about being featured across bbc channel 4 itv just a big change maker i want you to give it up wherever you are in your house in your friend's house in your car wherever you are for safe homes lewis who is the ceo and founder of mentivity Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. What an intro, what an intro. I have to make you feel good because we have to bring the vibrations up. I'm gas now, I'm gas now. I'm ready, let's go. (laughs) So for for those that don't know you, do you want to give like a quick, your own introduction as well to who you are? Yeah, um, as you said, say Times Lewis, I'm the founder and CEO of Mentivity, so that's my professional role. But outside of that, I'm a father, My, my son's 17. I'm also a husband now, newly married as well. So I saw, congrats. I know, nine nine weeks in now. Yeah, so enjoying that, but I'm very, very passionate about my community. I grew up on the Ellsbury Estate in South East London. For those that don't know, that's sandwiched in between Peckham, Camberwell and Elephant and Castle, a very unique estate. Um, and that is really part of my identity. So all my work is centered around young people on that estate for the last 25 years. So I've been working with young people since the age of 16. Um, but I'm just very passionate about mobilizing communities and supporting people to be better versions of themselves every single day, but also looking towards their passions and linking that to their career. So that's how Mentivity was born. It was born out of a bit of frustration, but mm. optimism to provide support for, for young people and, and their families. So that's me pretty much in a nutshell. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I love to, like the, the fact that you're doing something, you're dedicating your life to helping to like other young people that grew up in the area is incredible. And I want to hear more about it. Thank you. Yeah. But first and foremost, I want to know more about you. Mm-hmm. Like, you said that you grew up in Owlsbury Estate. Yep, yep, the notorious, where, where infamous. Is that? So, uh, if you know uh, that Woolworth Road, you know Burgess Park. Burgess Park. Yeah, so yes, Burgess Park. It's literally between Burgess Park, Old Kent Road, Elephant and Castle. At one point, it was one of the largest housing estates in the whole of England and Europe. Um, it's a big, massive grey estates and stuff. So, yeah, near East Street Market. So, okay, East Street yeah, Market. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I grew up. So, twenty-five years of my life, I lived on that estate. Uh, very proud to come from there. What was it like growing up there? Like, it, give us some. It context. was. It was. It had its challenges, like anywhere else. But I think with um, the Ellsbury Estate was very unique in terms of the demographic of people. It was very diverse. So quite quickly, I learned how to really work with other people from different backgrounds. And it was a at the heart of it was a really great community. But mm-hmm. there was a lot of issues around criminality, but also drug and substance misuse. Uh, you saw a lot of paraphernalia in the stairwells. And it was neglected by Southwark Council pretty much over the years to got to the point where they had to regenerate it. But as I said, at the heart of it was a community that was connected through Mm. maybe a common plight, you know, being close to the city, but not having all the opportunities. But, you know, it's a really great place and a lot of amazing people have come off that estate to do great things within society and and the world. So I'm very proud to come from there and it's part of my DNA. But um, yeah, I had a lot of challenges, but... That's why I've been doing a lot of work with young people to to try and find solutions around that and be that role model for many mm. other young people to which a lot of us didn't have, you know, mm. positive role models in that state because people are trying to figure out how to make it in life. And sometimes you get involved in negativity and those were the role models that a lot of people looked up to. 
So mm. we needed balance and I tried to be part of that balance. You know when you grew up on grew up on the estate, what were some of the positive because I feel like there's a lot of mm. negative stigmas and we will talk about challenges and everything shortly, but you mentioned community that mm. you know, you, you learned how to work with different diverse people. Mm. What were some of the other like really positive things? And feel free to tell me your story by the way. I love yeah. a story. Yeah, 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 so yeah. any standout things to you? Yeah, um well I'm the oldest of seven, so there was a lot of responsibility from from the beginning for me at first. Seven. Yeah. It was the on the estate it was the four in, originally. And then my mum had three more children, so I'm the oldest of seven. So it was a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. But as I said, it was a connected community and I learned a lot about other people's backgrounds, you know, and there were so many different people come into this state from mm. Africa, West Africa, from East Africa, from Asia. And literally it was just a melting pot of culture. And then you had the white working class that were there as well. So mm. you had this unique melting pot of culture. And that's what I loved about the Ellsbury estate. But again, one of the things that kept us all together was playing out, you know, being on the estate, playing football. Football is so important for many of us. Mm. And a lot of people have gone into the professional game, you know, from the Osbury estate. But I just love being there. You know, I loved in the summer playing out. It was just a fun place to be. Yeah. So many little football pitches and cages and all the monkey bars and all that stuff. And everyone playing run outs, knock down ginger. It was a vibrant community mm. when I was young. And now to see what it's like now is disheartening because there's not much of that going around. So... That's why I'm trying to do a lot more through the work that I'm doing to provide opportunities for young people to be young people, to be children, to experience a childhood, you know, without the fear of what's going on. So mm. as, as I said, a lot of positives. Um, I've got a lot of friends on the Osbury Estate, you know, that will always be by my side because we understand what we've come through to get mm. to where we are today. And a lot of us are doing really positive things. And again, like you said, not a lot of people really focus on that. They mm. want to focus on the negativity, but you know, Reese Nelson of Arsenal is someone that I coached and lived on the Osbury Estate. He's playing for, for Arsenal, doing really well. You know, his good friend Jaden Sancho was always on the estate as well, playing in the different cages around the estate. So football was something that brought people together. Football and food. <laughs> food was massively important, as I said. Neighbours, like, come and bring you into the house if mum was late and feeding you and things like that. Mm. That's what it was about, you know. And we had a lot of kind of... a disagreements mainly on the estate but when other people came outside we always banded together and that's what I loved and I, I learned a lot about that but also one of the positive things that there were so many different ways for me to get home so it was like every it's so many so broad, it's like a maze the Ellsbury estate so there's so many different ways that I could go walk you know this walkway that walkway you could walk from Old Kent Road to Wharf Road without even touching the ground because all the, the all the buildings were connected by bridges and things like that so oh, it was just, yeah, it? so it wired my brain and so many other young people, their, their brains differently because it, it made you realise there was more than one way to reach home or reach your target. Mm. And that's something which I've, I've really taken from the Osbury Estate because when I see an obstacle, I think, well, there's other ways for me to get there. And that's mm. what my life's been, you know, overcoming numerous obstacles to get to where I am today. So I want to talk more a little bit about the fact that, obviously, you played football a lot when you was growing up on the estate. Mm -hmm. You seemed like you had a lot of friends, obviously, mm -hmm. big family. Mm -hmm. Where did you think you would go? Like mm. when you when you kind of saw yourself on an estate, you know, you've got your surroundings, you see what you see. What did you think for your life at like when you were a bit younger? It's a good question. Um, you know, I didn't see anything outside of football for a long time. Okay. I'll be real with you, because what was happening was that unfortunately adults, some adults that work in schools and communities, they basically place their visions of young people and what they think young people should be doing mm. from their perspective onto onto young people like myself. 
So everyone at, at school was always telling me I was going to go into do my A-levels and get a degree and then, you know, do something great. And I was like, okay, I don't really want to do A-levels. I don't want to go to university. I just want to play football. And when my, my dad left the household at the age of eight, so that was a, a major issue for me, but I was trying to find myself through the game of football pretty much and the mm. pressure of being the eldest of, of four. Everyone expects you to have all the answers, but I didn't. I was trying to figure out life myself. So football allowed me to to experience things that I wouldn't have experienced in terms of success, you know. So I just wanted to be a professional football player. That's where I saw myself. And, you know, at the age of eight, nine, when I came across Ian Wright, I was like, that's who I want to be. Then I found out my birthday was the same as his, November 3rd. That's it. Destiny. And I was a striker. And I was like, this is yeah. it. He's from South East London. So that's what I, I always saw myself as being a professional football player. Mm. And I didn't really think about outside of that. I mean, there was other things like being a chef or being a businessman. That was something I thought about and being an entrepreneur because I saw my auntie. She worked in the city and then she went off to work in Germany uh, for a stockbroker company. And I saw her fly to Concord. Like she bought a certificate home and I saw the pictures and I was like, I want to be like you. If I don't play football, I want to be like you. Yeah. So I always thought about becoming a businessman and entrepreneur, but I wanted to be a professional football football player because um, that's what I love. So how did that play out for you when you were, I guess, young, you was playing football? Did you go to, I'm guessing you went to trials? Yeah, we had everything. a few trials, a few heartbreaks, but that's how it is. And um, I actually got scouted at the age of, of 19, uh, which was pretty late, but I set myself a target at the age of 14 um, to play professional football. Mm. And within five years, I was scouted on the Ellsbury Estate of, of all places. And then six weeks later, uh, August 2002, uh, I was flown out to the Republic of Ireland to a small town called Malingar. And uh, I trained with my best friend, who was my centre-back partner, trained for one hour, and then they offered us a professional contract pretty much on the spot. So within a week... At 19? Yeah, so within a week, I came home, got all my stuff, and then I moved to the Republic of Ireland. And I was playing professional football, like literally within two weeks of my trial, which was unreal. Go back a little bit, one second. <laughs> how would, how did how were you scouted on the estate? Like, what actually happened? So, literally, what what I so between fourteen and nineteen, fourteen is oh. when I really started playing um, football. I played for a team called Red Lion and came across my first mentor, a guy called Abdullah Ben Kamal, mm. better known as Abs, oh. and he grew up in Peckham on, on the Glebe Estate, and he was the eldest of his brothers, and they're from a Mor Moroccan background. But what he realised is that there was a lot of negativity that people were getting involved in, so were his brothers, and he wanted to navigate them away from, from that, using football and other young people. Mm. So he was a manager of Red Lion, and then we left Red Lion and became Kids FC, part of Kids Company. So we were the first ever football team there. So the more success I started to experience on the pitch, you know, winning trophies with Red Lion, with Kids FC, and with my mentor, Abs, I really felt like I could get closer to playing professional football. So I was just focusing on that, um, played semi-pro for Tensmead Town. And then literally I, I put together a tournament on the estate, a five-a-side tournament, and it was on the grass area. And we were playing this tournament and then we saw this black guy in an all-white kind of shell suit tracksuit sitting on his Range Rover, on the bonnet of his Range Rover. Sounds like a movie. I know, it was, it was. It's an, all I heard was, and I turned and I looked, I'm like, he's like, you, come. And I was like, mm -mm, I'm not all going over there. He says, come, come. I was like, what does this guy want? So I said to my best friend, Rebo, I said, Reeves, man, go and talk to him. He says, no, he called you, you go over. So I walked over reluctantly. I was like, yeah, what's up? And he was like, yeah, I've been watching you guys and you guys are really good football players. I was like, oh, okay, cool, thanks. He says, um, would you travel to play professional football? I was like, yeah, That's of course. That's mad. I said, I would travel anywhere. And he was like, would you go to, to Ireland? Would you go to Romania? Would you go to Austria? I said, look, me and Rebo, we will go anywhere. That's my centre-back partner. 
We're playing for um, Croydon Athletic and the reserve team at the moment. That's what we want to do. And then he was like, okay, cool. We'll have a meeting on Monday. Had a meeting at his house. He says, all right, be ready within the six weeks for, for us to, to, to go to Ireland. And then he sent us and then that was it. And the rest was history. So I lived in Ireland for about a year and uh, played for two teams in the town, Mullingar Town and Mullingar Athletic in the ICOM under 21 league. And it was a great experience. Most of my teammates were from London. Uh, we lived in two separate houses. Manager was from London. So it was just like a total culture shock. Living Ellsbury Estate one minute and then in a yeah, center. in a nice um, house. Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's what really set me on my path. And I achieved a target that I set for myself through football, which allowed me to find that belief within myself, you know, more deeply and realize that I could achieve it if I put in the hard work. So that was a major, major, you know, yeah, success for me. The thing is, you don't often meet people that have this level of luck or, you know, I put this out there and this actually happened like that. Because this sounds, mm. like, like I said, like a movie. Mm. Apart from the fact that he kind of came somewhere at the right time and he was in the right place, what characteristics and, I guess, qualities did you think you worked on mm. throughout the age of 14 to 19 that aided you to be ready for the opportunity when it came? I've always been a manifester. I've always been able to do that, but I didn't back it up with the work that was needed. So mm. what I realized at the age of 14, I was actually assaulted uh, coming home from school by a police officer. And a lot of my friends were Peckham boys and that was who I was pretty much affiliated with, just hanging around with. And I was on the train, got assaulted by by the officer who called me off the train. What happened, and sorry? Do you so literally I, I was sit, sat down on the train after playing a football match with my friends, got on the train and the train didn't go anywhere. Then the officer came onto the train, pointed out me out of everybody and says, get off the train. He says, you get off the train. So I stood up and I'm I'm inquisitive anyway. I says, well, why, what did I do? Mm. He says, get off the train before I take you off the train. I said, I'm not getting off the train if I haven't done anything. Then as soon as I finished that, he dragged me off the train, punched me. Punch um, punched me, pushed me up against the fence, took out his truncheon, hit me twice on my abdomen with a truncheon, hit me again, um, handcuffed me, and then put me on the floor, and then dragged me along the platform, up two flights of stairs, back to the ticket he office. He dragged you up two flights of stairs? With the handcuffs, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and all my friends had gotten off the train, and then other people from, you know, general members of the public were just witnessing, like, what's going on? What has he done? And then under pressure, like, he was just looking around, he looked pretty scared, and then he says, all right, I'm de-arresting you, go home. So then I went home and reluctantly I told my mum and then we pressed charges against the officer as a 14 year old, very naive. I thought, yeah, we're going to get justice. And then about eight weeks later, we get a letter in the post from the Crown Prosecution Service saying there's no further action. They don't have enough evidence to prosecute the officer. There was all these witnesses, plus probably CCTV yeah. footage cameras. Yeah, exactly if that. It was a, yeah. If it was a shoe on the other foot, yeah, 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 yeah. they would have found the footage and exactly the evidence. That, exactly that. And then about eight weeks after that, uh, I got a letter summoning me to court so I had to go to court as a 14 You had to go to court. For assaulting an officer. Yeah. So when I was in that courtroom, I saw people that didn't look like me who had the ability to determine what was going to happen in my life. And I never wanted to be in that position again. So right there in that moment, even though I was scared, you know, I was crying, I was very traumatized because of what happened to me. And I thought I was going to go to prison for something I didn't do. But I realized mm. I never wanted to be in a courtroom ever again, you mm. know, as, you know, a perpetrator of anything. Uh, so when I left that courtroom, as deeply traumatised as I was, I said, right, I'm going to focus on myself. So that summer, going into year 10, I just focused on football and becoming a, uh, getting my year colours and to becoming then on my way to becoming a prefect. And I literally moved away from my friendship circle. 
So that's something I've always been really good at. If people around me are not as focused as me or don't want to achieve certain things, mm. then I'll just move on and do my own thing. From that situation, you yeah, felt like yeah, you yeah. To, yeah, I did. Even yeah. though you didn't, no one's done anything wrong. No, no, no. It's just you know what, being around people where by they weren't thinking about what the future was for them and what they were going to do, and mm. I also witnessed the stabbing um, at that age as well. And I was like, I don't want to be in and around this. So I just started focusing on my education and what happens and all my friends pretty much and people in my, my year group just turned against me because I wanted to put myself first. So I was very isolated for a really? year. Yeah, I was very isolated for a year and, you know, people call it bullying nowadays, but this was just part and parcel of being at, you know, school. I went to King's Zone, West Dulwich, very difficult school at that mm. time. And that year, year 10, was probably one of the hardest years of my life. Like every Monday was a struggle for me to get up to go to, to school because I knew I would have to fight just to exist and fight just to study and do what I need to do just because people felt that I thought I was better than them. But that wasn't the case. So after that year, in year 11, people just respected me because I just stood on my own. And I just really realised that I had to focus on myself. And that's where I got that real determination to just achieve what I wanted to achieve. And that's what really set me on my path. Thank you for sharing a lot of that. Even like with the, it's crazy because when you're talking about the whole police situation, yeah. I think, so the same thing happened to my mum mm, as well. Mm. Like assault, got assaulted by a police officer mm. whilst she was a mother, yeah. like, and then had charges pressed against her as well. Yeah. And I think whenever I spoke, spoken about this situation, like to companies and stuff, a lot of them say, oh wow, these things happen. I'm like, this is a common mm, thing mm. in the black community yeah. that people, we go through that, that we go through that's traumatizing. But yep. what I really admire, mm with all of this is that you took it as, do you know what? Let me not to blame anyone or yeah. blame anything and let me just better myself. Yeah. And even though it was really difficult, you still kind of yeah. like continued, especially at that age of 14, 15, when yeah. you, you kind of want to be, you kind of want to be popular. Yeah, and, and, that, and that was what I wanted to be when I went to secondary school, you know, I always pretty much was, but what I realized is that where my trajectory was going, that yeah. it was nowhere positive. And, I had a good family, you know, my mum my and my, my uncle and people were just telling me, and plus my mentors, you know, Abs and then Mr. Hanson was my teacher, head of year at Kingsdale. Oh. They were really good influences and those those mentoring kind of dynamics were very important for me because they, oh. it was guided discovery. They guided me as I discovered life and I made a lot of mistakes, but they were always there for me when I made those mistakes. So mm. it was very, very important. That's why I hold mentoring in such high esteem because mm. people took time out of their day in their lives to support me. And mm. that's really, really helped me. So why should I not then pay that forward to the, the next generation? So that's what really inspired me to do what I do. But that's why I'm just so determined and focused because I, my life could have gone a totally different way. Mm. Just like so many other people that I know that are doing great things because that was all that we saw was the negativity mm. and the opportunity to make fast money and to be, you know, the admiration about, around, oh, he's a football player or, you know, he's a drug dealer or he's doing that, who's got the latest car. That's what we saw, unfortunately. We didn't see overly positive role models. So I challenged myself to be that um, whilst doing the things that I wanted to do. What influence did your mum have on you yeah. at the time? Because you mentioned that at eight years old, mm. she was effectively a single mum mm -hmm. from that point. Um, and I'd be interested to know, if you don't mind sharing, mm. like what she was like for like growing up and how she kind of influenced your upbringing. My mum is my everything my mom's my inspiration like she's given us the foundation all seven of us to have the lives that we're, we're we're living now and you know she holds education in such high esteem and from a young age you know when we went into reception we were reading and writing like way ahead of other people and they just Is couldn't it? believe it yeah so my mom's always held education in such high esteem but also 
community and family, you know, integrity. Those are the real, real core values for my mum. So she just held everything together. And it was difficult for her, you know, with four children on the estate and living up to other people's views of stereotypes and trying to keep me predominantly on track because I was really struggling in terms of like authority and just finding out who I was and my racial identity when I experienced racism, there was so much, but mm. I didn't feel that I could talk to people in my household or my family about certain things so I didn't want to be judged. I didn't like want to what? I didn't want to burden them with things that I was going through. You know, Stephen Lawrence was killed when I was mm. at the age of 10 and I was scared. I realised quickly that this could be anybody. Mm. My family grew up in Eltham and Mottingham. It was always down there. And that reality, you know, it hit me as a young person and being aware of racism and people calling me the N-word and a monkey and all these different things and then mm. seeing like Millwall fans walking through the state and they'll be racially abusing me and other, you know, uh, black children and things like that, you know, combat AE and the NF, so you quickly realise that this was a very hostile environment. You know, at Red Lion Football Club, that was in Bermondsey. I used to get chased out of Bermondsey routinely just to play football because of the colour of my skin. So that reality of Stephen Lawrence and potentially someone becoming another Stephen mm-hmm. Lawrence was very real. So that was difficult, but my mum was always there. You know, my mum was always trying to push us uh, in the right way and... I love her so much and she's actually works for Mentivity now, you know, she's the head of head of education. She's been a teacher, you know, she went back to education after she had our last sister, seven children, qualified as a teacher, been a teacher now for the last 15 years. So she's had a great career and she's living life and enjoying. But without my mum and that foundation and the foundation of my uncle, my uncle Neville, amazing man who unfortunately has passed away, he was someone that kept us, you know, on the straight and narrow. Yeah, yeah, my uncle Neville. Did you live in Brixton? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Sorry, I don't know what he did. That's what I have. Uncle Neville that passed away as well. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my uncle Neville as well. Just someone who was so knowledgeable, just like my mum, and just someone that just held integrity, you know, in its highest form, and just spoke to me, you know, in a way that I could resonate with. And even when I made mistakes, he would tell me the truth, and it was harsh, but. I needed to hear it. And he mm. was telling me where my trajectory would potentially be. Mm. Um, so without that, you know, from my family, that discipline, I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing today. And it was still, mm. there were still many other obstacles, you know, in my 20s and 30s. But that resilience piece, I've got that from my mum because every single day she showed up. What's her name? Um, my mum? Uh, yeah. Jen, Jennifer. Just yeah. shout out Jennifer. <laughs> shout out, no, because was seven kids. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. On her own. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like she's done really well with them as well. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're all doing positive things. We're all doing great things. We're all am- a lot amazing. of our work is centers around community, education, young people. We come from a family of educators, pretty much. So that's amazing, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's beautiful that she's able to now work with your company. As yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. That's great to see, and just seeing her enjoy life and travel and do the things that she wants to do, and it's important. You know, we've got to pay it, pay it back to our parents because they invested a lot of time, you know, in us. And my mum is no different, so. I want her now to enjoy life. I want her to retire. I want to retire my mum. Like mm. that's that's the dream. That's that's what I feel is my life's work. If I can retire my mum and let her enjoy life, just the same mm. way she's allowed me to experience and enjoy life. That's what we've got to do. That's a measure of, of a man, of a son, of a child, you know. You've got to look after your parents and enjoy that time that you have. You hear that man? <laughs> okay. This is an example. <laughs> this, this is an example. Listen, take notes. No, honestly, that's this is this is fantastic. That it's so it's so good, especially because I'll keep it a hundred percent. You're Caribbean too. Yeah, 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 yeah. From Barbados and Jamaica, so you're Caribbean too. And yeah. it's not. Uh, I, I would say that in 
I guess in this profession, black professional realm, mm. I'm seeing more Caribbeans as, I, as I'm entering the, the realm and speaking to more people. Mm. But at the forefront, I see much more from um, like Nigeria mm-hmm. or like in Africa in general. So, mm. which is great, yeah. but it's so nice to see like a diverse representation, yeah. you know, from the Caribbean as well. So we're, I love we're all African anyway. Yeah, so. no, no, we, we all are. We all are. I embraced it. So yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. But just, so just to understand. So you played um, football mm-hmm. two years. Yeah. Why did that end? So from from Ireland, I went to Romania. So I went to a team in <gasps> Romania, yeah, which okay. was an amazing experience. So I remember flying and landing in Bucharest for the first time, and it was just like a culture shock. It was like wow, but it was why it was just amazing. Obviously, you have a lot of preconception around those Eastern Bloc countries, and when I got there, it was nothing what I expected. Um, it was actually more modern than I realized. What, so, Romania? Yeah, yeah, Bucharest was unreal. I was in the airport. I remember waiting for the team to pick me up and a young boy with his dad was walking past and he, the boy stopped and he looked at me and he just pointed and he went, Negro. And then I looked at him looking down at him and thinking, is this guy being <laughs> racist? And then I realized Negro just means black in Romanian. So I was like, oh, okay. So he was just saying that like, he's black. And he couldn't believe it because he probably hadn't seen a black person before. So... And I was like nervous thinking, oh gosh. And then I got in a taxi to go to the team hotel. Um, and then when I went around the corner, I saw everything, all the modern shots, everything. I was like, oh, I feel at home, which is <laughs> weird. Um, but Romania was a great experience. And I got myself a three-year contract out there for a team called FC Brasov. And unfortunately my agent was, who at managing me at the time, just messed up the whole deal, even though they offered me a three-year contract. So what? I came, yeah, so I came back to England, oh, no. back to the Ellsbury State after not being home for like nearly two years. And then I was figuring out what I was going to do. So playing semi-pro and then I started working at after-school clubs for Southwark Council. I was already coaching, qualified as a coach uh, the year before, 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just started utilising my skill set in terms of football and now nurturing the next generation through football and coaching and mentoring. Um, so that was 2004. And mm-hmm. then I was also offered a scholarship to go to Howard University in Washington, D.C. So my best friend and I. So he went off. And I wasn't able to go because they didn't accept uh, my PEGCSE and I didn't have science, so they didn't accept it. So he flew off. What do you mean they didn't accept it? They just said it it wasn't an exam, that I didn't do an exam, which I had done a written exam. And then they said, oh, okay, but that's just gym. It means you just run around and the teacher gives you a grade. I'm like, no, look at the syllabus. This is what I've done. So they didn't accept me. And my friend went, my best friend, Rebo, who still lives there today. Um, And yeah, so... Howard University didn't work out for me. And then I had two bad injuries, um, playing semi-pro back to back. Then I had a kidney disorder, which nearly took my life in 2005. What happened with that? Just slow down one second. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, this is a lot of information. I know, I know, I know. So 2004, I had a meniscal, no, I broke and dislocated my ankle. Um, and then it took me 10 months to get back. So I got back in middle of 2005, pretty much. Um, and then after three months uh, I had an injury which was a knee injury because I was overcompensating because of the injury I had the year before so I had a meniscal tear on my knee so I'd have an operation for that but just before that I was diagnosed with a kidney disorder called nephrotic syndrome Um, and what that issue was was that my kidneys were releasing too much protein um, every time I was going to the bathroom pretty much and I was retaining water in my body so one day I got out of the shower and I was like creaming my legs and I looked in the mirror and my leg was like this, it was huge. It was like two of my legs together. And it was like Play-Doh. So I was like, Wait, what? just overnight? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what is this? I'm like, what is going on? So then I went to the, the doctors. As soon as I got in here, he, he looked at me. He's like, oh my gosh, 
And I said, what? So when the doctor starts panicking, you start panicking. He was like, I'm calling the ambulance right now. You need to get to the hospital right now. And he said, if I didn't get there, and the hospital said, if I didn't get there any sooner, then I might have passed away. So yeah, so it was a really bad um, this disease. But only young children have it or the elderly. So I was like 24, 23. So it was very rare for you very to have rare. that. Very rare, yeah. So I was on the renal ward up until Christmas Eve in 2005. And then, um, yeah, it was such a crazy journey for two years, just dealing with that kidney disorder and being on this um, prednisolone, which is a steroid to help repair my body. But, and then it just basically made my body weak, susceptible to all illnesses, all lost all my muscle. I was depressed, I was at my lowest point, you know. Uh, for two, two years? Yeah, pretty much. What yeah. did you do for those two years? So I was still working in the community, working in a um, secondary school in Elton as a teaching assistant and doing some coaching for my mentors club, Greenhouse Bethwin. Um, and yeah, I was just trying to figure things out because football wasn't no longer feasible. And because of the, the medication I was taking, my knee couldn't heal after surgery. So I was literally in my worst shape and I was depressed. And at my lowest point, 2006, July, I had my son. <laughs> so I had my son, which was that beacon of light. You know, when he was born, I realized, one, I can't feel sorry for myself. Two, I've got to be a role model for him. Three, I want to make this world a safer place for him. So I need mm. to do a lot more with young people. Mm. And he really motivated me to get out of that, that, that mode because I was so in love with the game of football and so distressed that I couldn't get into what I wanted to. And I was mm. so close. It almost defined me in terms of who I was, you know, being a football player that defined who I was. And mm. without that, it was like, who am I? You know, mm. so, um, yeah, but having my son was my, my greatest blessing. You know, he's um, 17, 18 this year. Just passed his driving test yesterday. So, okay, so big, that's big, it. Big up, Cam, got, big up, Cam. Okay. Congrats, Cam, on your driving test. That's yeah. it now. I know, he's it's gone. Off. Yeah, I saw him. He drove past me today when oh, I was on the road. I was like, I looked, is that my son? I was like, <laughs> I was like that was weird, weird. So yeah, he's on the road now. So, um, but yeah, I just really struggled through a lot of things, you know, and as a black man, there's so many different things you've got to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis just to exist, you know, and, um, you know, not being respected within education, even though I've built great rapport with young people and just, the way that the world saw me, it was just trying to shake and break free of those those chains and those stereotypes, you know? So it wasn't easy. What type of stigmas were attached to you when you was working in education? Like challenges as a black man? Uh, that I was unprofessional, uh, that I was uh, aggressive. Uh, it was always the same thing, aggressive. Um, but it was centered around a lot of jealousy, to be honest, because most of the teachers or people that worked in these schools couldn't build rapport with young people the way that I could and they would respect me like I would go into a class and they'd be kicking off and I'd be like everybody sit down now in a calm way and they would just sit down because they respect me because I give them my time and I listen to them so there was a lot of people just putting these kind of negative stereotypes on me and I felt like a boy in those those spaces even though I was a young man so I actually kind of not regressed but I just kind of kept myself to myself and just did the core of my work um, but it wasn't really a very happy ex existence, you know, working mm. in those schools and stuff. And then from there, I went to a pupil referral unit where I was actually valued, you know, by the, the head teacher. And I was a PE teaching assistant. I loved what I was doing. Mm. The young people, even though they were challenging, I loved them, they loved me. You know, that's 2007 and I still got relationships with young people mm. that I've worked with, you know, up until this day. So that was really re rewarding, you know, for me, so. At this time when you became a PE teacher, had you recovered from um, taking steroids and everything? Yeah, like that yeah, as well? just 2007, I, I came to the end of that. So towards the end of the year, which was a relief. And 
you know, I hadn't played football at any decent level for a number of years. I was told to quit and retire pretty much. So mm. I had to leave that behind. So that football was, was like rehabilitation for me. It was, mm. a, it was a release. So not being able to do that was very, very difficult. So I had to find other things like coaching and really focus on my career and doing the good for the other young people to mm. help me feel better within myself. Mm. Um, but then after what, two and a half years, so 2008, I just decided I don't let people determine what I can and can't do. I never do. So mm. I, I got myself fit again, built up my body and went back to playing semi-pro football, you know. So um, I'm, always, I'm always overcoming something. Um, and that was great for me um, to do. Uh, but at that time, I was working as a full-time coach for mm. Suburb Council, for Suburb Community Games, mm. which went to schools, did a lot of like mentoring and sports delivery. And we also went to housing estates and engaged young people through football, different sports as well. Mm. And also worked very closely with the youth offending team and like doing one-to-one mentoring mm. and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I was really starting to progress in that role, uh, mm. you know, qualified in seven different sports as a coach. Um, and then I realized that I was- Seven? Reaching, yeah, yeah, yeah. What yeah. seven sports? Seven sports right, so it's a challenge now. So we're gonna go football, okay. uh, cricket, Okay. Rugby. Right. Basketball. Right. Boxing. Okay. Uh, handball and netball. Netball? Yeah, yeah. High five netball. It's great. You, the yeah, netball. Yeah. As your coach, it's about what you, <laughs> if you are a coach, you're a proper coach, you can coach anything. <laughs> I don't know why that sounds so bad, especially as a DI person. I should not be saying that. It's so bad. But it's just surpri- yeah. surprising. Okay. What? Okay. Tell, quick, just quick with netball. Hmm. What are some of the rules in netball? Because I used to play netball. So I can't I, remember now. So can... High five netball is diff- different though. Oh, so high what's five, that one? That is a more like a, a quicker um, version of the game. Really better for young people. So it was just about more success in that. And it was just like a little bit more loose in terms of the rules. But we did that. Well, that was 2009. So it's a long it's time ages ago. ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I just love coaching and like coaching different sports. So... It was really, really important time for me. But I wanted to coach at professional clubs. Mm. But I quickly realised that as a black coach, I wasn't going to get the jobs that I wanted in the game. Why? Because there's, there's no progression progression routes, even for ex-pros. You know, you're looking at Sol Campbell and other players that have done really good in the professional game and they don't get the chances to take jobs at the higher clubs. And it's always with like some sort of restrictions or expecting you to put in more than, you know, time than you're actually getting paid for. Mm. You know, it's, it's been a well-versed, you know, you had John Barnes, Sol Campbell was at South End, I believe, and it just hasn't worked out for many black managers. So I was actually offered a role uh, at Arsenal and I had to do my UEFA B licence, uh, which What's is that, it's like level three. So you have level one, which is entry to coaching. Level two is a bit more experience, uh, like coaching 11 aside, mm. then UEFA B is where you can actually coach at professional clubs. So mm. you can coach anywhere in Europe, pretty much right. all the world. So that was my real target, but the workplace I was working for didn't allow me to do that. So I decided to go back to education. Didn't allow you to? No, they were supposed to pay half of it and they didn't pay for the half. And then I said, you know what? You can't stop me from improving and studying because they knew that when I got that, I would leave. Mm. So then I said, all right, to, to spite you, but also to do something different because I realised I can't progress in football. I'm going to go back to university and get my day release from you guys. And so I went to university, uh, back to university at the age of 28. Yeah, so what university? University of East London. Yeah, okay. yeah. So big up the University of East London. Like really amazing period of my life. And I studied there full time, three and a half years, studying full time, working full time, ten hours a week, youth work, playing semi pro football, raising my son. I did it all at one time because of all the time I wasted when I was younger. So three and a half years of real dedication, got my degree, uh, youth and community work with sports development. So I did a combined degree, which mm. is pretty rare. 
uh, and it was a perfect degree for me. And um, during that time, I was made redundant uh, for my role as a full-time coach for, for Southwark Council. Mm. And then I did a report on one of my uh, places I was coaching, a football club, mm. and they offered me a job before I finished university as a community development manager. And that's what really kind of put me on the path towards mentivity, plus the studies and the concept of mentivity mm. that I created whilst at university. So um, I worked there for 15 months and then they made me redundant. And then I had worked for this charity for nine years. So they had to pay me as a full-time employee, like a fixed-term employee. So I took my money, which was a decent payoff. And then I set up Mentivity on the 14th of January, 2016. So we just turned eight, um, this Sunday just gone. So that's what really set me on the path to Mentivity. That's amazing. That's incredible. And I think it's it's even more incredible because you definitely had hurdles and challenges. Mm along the way that were like like what you said like life threatening as yeah. well i want to know so just to touch upon you recovering to the point of you saying no i can do this like i can still be a coach yeah. and you becoming a coach and you going through university mm. at 28 there's some people there's a lot of people right now that might be listening or watching mm. that are currently going through their roughest period in life mm. like toughest whether it's with work yeah. health whatever it is and they are struggling to get to the next point. Are there any words that you can share or any advice mm. for those people mm. that are going through that? Yeah, um, one of the things I, I, I maintain and something that I've lived by is, is finding your passion. It's important to find your passion. If you find your passion, then you can dedicate, dedicate yourself to that passion. And I will say you have to persevere no matter what, because those challenges are, are, are put there for a reason to right. showcase how much you really want it. So whatever it is, whatever objective, whether your passion is becoming, you know, a better person or if it's losing weight or gaining more muscle, whatever it is, whatever you're passionate about, you need to have, that needs to be at the center of it. Right. And I will say that you have to invest that time in your in yourself. If you invest that time in yourself, you will be paid. And I'm not talking about money, I'm talking about success. Mm. You know, we have to continuously invest in ourselves and give ourselves a foundation to build upon, you know, so it's about small, you know, creating small habits which help you create these greater, you know, achievements and greater habits. And that's what I've done, you know, I've just really been receptive to learning mm. um, over the last 15 years and pretty much and just trying to learn as much as I can and really doing that work on myself too, you know, really checking myself at certain times. And mm. um, it's been really, really important. And even my journey through therapy as well, it's been massively important. And if you can invest in yourself in that way too, mm. because everybody, has areas of or traits that we need to improve on you know i've had to do that too so definitely finding your passion mm. you know dedicating yourself to that passion and persevering no matter what and you'll just find you'll have the most amazing life and amazing experiences and i have you know if i this was my last day today i could say i've lived life mm. you know i've had some really great experiences and you know tomorrow's not promised so live for today that's really, really good advice. That's not the end, by the way. Okay, but I just wanted to know, just just while I was on the yeah, on that yeah, point, yeah. but that that's really good advice. Thank you for that yeah. as well. Um, so mentivity. Mm -hmm. What was the vision when you first started started it? What did you think it would be? How did you get it off the ground? Like, let's yeah. talk, let's talk about that journey. Yeah, to be honest, I had a totally different outlook. I wanted it to be an alternative provision to so providing like alternative education support for for young people, using mentoring and more informal ways of working which is that's what youth work is underpinned by, informal education, learning through conversations, sharing experiences, working with young people from where they're at. Um, so doing that youth work degree was very, very important to understand what I was actually doing on mm. the day-to-day -day and yeah. realising, oh, this is the theory behind it and this yeah. is why this works. 
And um, so the vision was to create this service for young people, but allowing them to come to this school pretty much, this alternative vision, if you've been, you know, excluded from school to come and work with us. So we did that in the beginning, but then what I quickly realized that there was massive opportunities to go into schools and offer like one-to-one mentoring. A lot of schools were asking for it. So I realized that the model that I was looking at long-term might have worked, but would have taken a lot of effort and it wouldn't have been able to, to pay me what I would have need to support myself and my family. Mm. Uh, so there was an opportunity to work with one student in the school uh, in, what was it, must have been May 2016. So about three months after I launched Mentivity um, in February of that year, uh, 2016. And then quickly we moved from one student to three students, three students to 15, 15 to 30, until we had 65 students we were working with on a week-to-week basis. And the schools are paying you? The schools are paying me directly. So I set Mentivity up as a limited company initially because I didn't want it to be a charitable mm. entity. I didn't want people to look down on us and be like, oh, they need help, oh, there's a yeah. handout. Yeah. I wanted to showcase self-determination and that was a real model. And then we found our niche there, you know, going to schools, doing the one-to-one uh, mentoring, the group work and doing the reports for the schools and allowing them to understand how they could support that student better, incorporating the parents in the process, you know, mentoring the parents and helping them to become better parents and understand their children. So we became this centralised kind of like focal point between the schools, the young people and the parents. And we're just, you know, moving information here and there to make sure that the, the lives of young peoples can be enhanced, you know, mm. through what we were doing. So that was the, the vision, the secondary vision. And we haven't looked back ever since, you know. So, yeah, it's been amazing. How, how did you scale it? Because you obviously started off by yourself. Yeah, yeah, I started off. So, yeah, so I was a founder. So, so, yeah, I went out on my own January 2014 and I actually because I was made redundant I was actually doing the things that I really wanted to do so I went to Barbados um, where where I'm from um, and I'd been to Barbados several times before that I actually was called up to represent Barbados um, at the age of 29 um, but whilst playing semi-pro football here to represent Barbados so I went out there and made the final 23 um, in football? yeah I was made the final in the Caribbean Cup so I was supposed to play against Dominican Republic um, Dominica and Aruba in the qualifiers, but someone didn't put my passport through uh, at the Barbados FA. Nah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like, what is going on? First of all, it's my, the the deal being yeah. stopped, and then this, and then the how, and then what is going on? It's life. It, it was all for a reason. I didn't understand it yeah. at the time. As I said, I've had a lot of obstacles I had to overcome. So, I actually at that point, I took it in a way. I was so happy that I was called up and made the final twenty three. And I was actually supposed to captain the team as well. Um, but <gasps> what I know, you put your passport through? I know, I know, I know. The person that, the lawyer that was supposed to do it, didn't do it. So I went out there, not for any re- no reason, but it was still a great experience, you know. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I know that I did enough to be in the squad and do what I needed to do. But mm. when I was there, this is 2012, I saw a lot of young players that didn't have any pathways to go into the professional game from Barbados. So I always vowed to myself that I would come back and do uh, an initiative. So I, in 2016, in January, I went out to Barbados and did some scouting. Went around the, cl- the clubs and just checked out the players. And then in my head, I was like, right, I'm going to bring a, a, a scout from England, from the Premier League, to come and see the players that we've got here. Um, and then from there, I actually went to Trinidad, Trinidad Carnival. Uh, so I was in Trinidad Carnival. And then I got an email after sending out my um, my offer for Mentivity to many schools. And one school came back to me and says, yeah, can we start in two weeks' time? And I was like, what? So I literally had to come back from Trinidad, didn't even finish Carnival, flew back to set up Mentivity. You to left launch Carnival? It. Yeah. Oh, you're so... Yeah. <laughs> I know, so conflicted. I know. 
had to come back. I had to come back. Oh no. Yes. I mean, that's good, but. Well, if I didn't do it, I would enjoy the carnival, but I would have had no mentivity. Yeah. So it was necessary, you know. Uh, so I did that and came back and, and got it going. So yeah, I, I literally then launched this program in Barbados as well. And I literally brought a coach, um, sorry, the assistant head of recruitment, uh, Jamal Jarrett, who's now at Man United. And okay. he came over and he scouted the same four players that I'd scouted. I didn't tell him. And then we brought them over to England that summer. So I always wanted to do certain things. And that time, that redundancy allowed me to really do step it. into my power. Mm. And I realised putting that together and having this showcase weekend and being in Barbados, BFA paying for my flight, my accommodation. I was like, that's this amazing. Is, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I was like, right. And then when Mentivity was set up, I'm like, I'm on a roll. And I just really was investing in myself. And just loving this newfound energy and this verve and these opportunities, you know. So I've always been someone that can make money. I've mm. always had the gift of the gab from a young age. Mm. You know, from school days, I was selling the sherbet straws, you know, for two pence in school. But I bought it for a penny <laughs> after lunch because everyone wanted that sugar rush. So I'd sell them for three pence. So I'd be tripling my money on some days, you know. So I always knew how to get people to do the things I would want to do, mm. you know. So And that was no different with Mentivity. And this initiative with the Barbados FA. So, yeah, that that was a really great year for me and just mm. stepping into my power and just really, as an entrepreneur, jumping out of the plane with no parachute and figuring out how I'm going to land safely. You That's know? the vibe. I love that. Because <laughs> I feel like if you don't jump, you don't know what you don't know where you're going to land. You don't know what, what you're going to see. Yeah. And then what you're going to say your whole life, I, I didn't jump because yeah. I was scared. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly that. And I've got right. no regrets. So, as I said, I've lived life. And, yeah, my brother... Tyson's a co-founder um, and he came on board in April 20, 2016. Then Leon, uh, our business partner and friend, came on in September 2016. Mm. And then we haven't looked back since. So, yeah. How did you build the business acumen? Because it's, 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 yeah. one, it's one thing to, I guess, be a sales person. Mm. But, and I've learned this as well in mm. my journey, mm. that, yeah, cool, having a gift of the gab is good, but there's actually the business that needs yeah. to run and yeah. function. Yeah. And I've made a lot of mistakes. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have to, though. You have to make the mistakes. <laughs> so, like, how did you learn? Like, and what are there any lessons that you can kind of highlight that stand out to you? Yeah, I have learned a lot. I really have. I was very naive in the beginning around mm. certain things. I didn't even know what a service level agreement was, do you know what I mean, for, for schools and for contracts and putting that in place to protect myself and protect the business. So I've learned the hard way, but I just asked questions and I just sat down with people that were already doing it or doing things in other realms and just getting a lot of feedback. And mm. sometimes it was disheartening because they would come back like, you need to do this, this and this, and this is not up to the standing. And it's like, oh, man, I've got a lot of work to do. But you have to be realistic around it. So I just kept trying to learn. And, you know, a lot of people around me were doing great things and talking about scaling up. And I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to reach out to local authorities and different. So I just had to just try, you know, and like write my own funding bids. I'd never done that before. Mm -hmm. uh, applying for overdrafts, getting a business bank account. Like all these things were just like aiding to me. And, and you're not taught these things in school, but mm. we've got the internet. <laughs> So I just utilise that, you know, gov.uk for business is like the Bible, you know, you can learn so much. Mm. So I just asked a lot of questions and just kept trying to learn. And as I said, as you said, made a lot of mistakes along the way, but you have to, it has to be trial and error. Mm. You have to understand that, you know, so yeah. And that's why Limited Company was important, but then setting up the CIC, um, limited by shares, again, it should have been by guarantee, but then I didn't What's the difference, sorry? So limited by shares means that shareholders can take profit mm -hmm. and take dividends. Whereas limited by guarantee, you can't do that. So whatever money is there, you should be trying to invest it within mm -hmm. what you're doing as a social enterprise. 
but then also if you wind up the business, then it's like an asset transfer. So you have to nominate another charity. So for example, all the equipment that we might have for Mentivity, if we wound it up, then we'll have to donate it to another charity because that's part of the mem the articles of association and the memorandum, I believe. So yeah, we had to do that. So all that stuff was having to learn, you know, mm. in and around that. Plus when having conversations with corporate corporations, they're like, are you a charity? No, I'm a limited company. Sorry, <laughs> we can't fund you. We can't give you money because we have to offset that as a tax write-off. Can't you just do a service for them? You can, but it depends what the service, and at that stage, we weren't in a position to provide mm. a service and have enough knowledge in that area. Mm. Whereas now, we are in a position to do that for certain different things that they're mm. trying to do, and more around consultancy as well. Mm. But also, like now they're investing in us because they understand that, one, we've got the charitable entity, mm. we'll be a fully-fledged charity in about six to eight weeks. Mm. But they're trying to plug the gaps in society and we're trying to help them to look good by doing that and to have a real impact too mm. because sometimes they're so detached from what's actually happening mm. they need someone that's immersed in that community to, to bring them closer to the situations and the issues mm. and the problems that we're trying to solve you know in terms mm. of young people's lack of opportunity violence mental health and well-being there's so much that's going on for them Mm. So we have to try and provide a, a holistic wraparound service mm. um, to support these young people. And they understand the importance of that now. How does the mentor programme work? Like, so talk us through, like, if you go into a school and there's, say, 10 students, like, what's the typical, like, time length and the programme, just to give us insight? So we have a programme which is supported by Goldman Sachs called the Raising Aspirations Project. So okay. literally, what it's, it's a 12-week programme. Uh, it's a mixture of one-to-one -one work and group work. Um, and there'll be topical themes around like identity, around the way they see themselves in the world and things like that. Um, looking at more specific things around branding, you know, and how branding is important when you talk about your reputation and look at you as a person. So we get them to think about who they are and really identify with themselves. Mm. So they have that foundation. Mm. Uh, and again, it can be dictated by the young people in and around what they would like to see at mm. Mentivity. So we do a lot of consultations as well. So typically the Raising Aspiration project runs for 12 weeks. Um, at the end of that, we have like a graduation event or we might continue to work with some of the young people that might need need, need more support. Mm. Um, but the one-to-one -one mentoring is really where the crux of the, the, the work happens, you know, really having those honest conversations with young people from where they're at and trying mm. to reinforce their learning and get them to be more responsible and accountable, but also how to emotionally regulate and increase their emotional intelligence as well. Um, and then on another one of our programs, uh, we're working with Foot Locker and Laurier Sport for Good. So we're doing stuff more around yoga and mindfulness and Muay Thai, mm. um, and then linking that to one-to-one -one mentoring as well and group work. So again, we have different programs that we're running with different corporate partners, but at the center of it is young people and their well-being and how they see themselves now and down the line and how they can reach their targets, you know, mm. their passions and linking those passions to careers. Mm which is massively important because you know as a young person mm. when we were young whatever we were passionate about we were, we were gas we were like right that's what i'm gonna do i'm yeah. gonna put the work in and it's no different now so we just got to support them and guide them so they can see it that is visible and viable mm. and say right that's what i want to do now i can plan by working backwards so i need i need these gcse's i need these a levels or a b tech or i need this apprenticeship or internship mm. so we're just creating a picture of progression for them and success is addictive, isn't it? You know, when you do something good and you're like, all right, this what's works. next? Yeah, next, yeah, yeah. And that's what we try to do with young people. You know, it's very, really important. Are there any stories or any examples that stand out to you from people that you've mentored? There's so many. There's so many. Um, there's so many. <laughs> Literally, I worked with so many young people. Uh, 
but there was a young lady uh, called uh, Tiani. Big up, big up TG Bills. Uh, so Tiani, uh, we worked at a school called Woodside High in in, in North London, and um, I remember going to the school. And I did this introductory session. So we always start with an introduction. We tell them about our journey mm. and our life so we can build that rapport and they can ask questions around like, you know, like the story I've just shared. And they're like, oh, so what, you did that? And they see the synergies and they start asking questions. So I remember doing that. And Tiani and her her crew, man, they were just giving me a hard time. And you know, like when you go into a school <laughs> and you're, you're, you've got the badge on and you're in there and you're just trying to maintain cool and they're just like boying you like, like trying to boy you, I'm sitting, what I'm standing there, I'm standing there like these. I don't know who I am. Like, <laughs> so then I just had to just stick it on them, just be like, listen, you think because I've got this on that you know you can talk to me in this way, blah blah. blah but yeah. This is who I am, and you're gonna disrespect me. But if you try to do this to somebody on the street, and that was an adult who doesn't have any emotional regulation mm. or intelligence, what might happen? Oh, yeah. So this is a bad habit. So why are you doing this? I'm here for you. Have some respect. I'm respecting you guys. Mm, mm, mm. And um, it was very difficult because they were had very low trust for anyone coming to their schools because they had a lot of mentors that had come into the school and left, not through any fault of their own, but because of the school mm. and lack of resources and things like that. So they just thought, oh, here we go, another mentoring service, another mentor. And they just didn't respect us uh, and more me at that moment. Um, but I had to just stay the course and just kept building that relationship with, with Tiani. And now she's, oh, I think she's 19, 20 now. Yeah, might be 20 now. Um, but we really worked with her and her passion was football. Then we found that she loved poetry, which I love to write poetry as well. So I shared some of mine with her and she's like, oh, no way. And then she started sharing her poetry. And we just built like the most amazing mentor-mentee like relationship and dynamic. And we had an exhibition where we celebrated her and other young people at King's Cross and Cold Drops Yard. And we put her on a billboard and she couldn't oh. believe it. She was like, oh my gosh. Like, and she could actually see herself being successful rather than being this angry young lady who loved football, who just rolled with the mandem because she loved, just she was a tomboy. Right. Yeah. And she was just like, you know, angry, but she just didn't know why. But now she's a TikToker. She does all these dances, got a dance crew and stuff. And she's now at university um, doing great as well. She's done great stuff with Mentivity, been an ambassador for Mentivity over the last three, four years, um, helped us with a Jordan campaign, all these different things. Any event she comes down, she brings young people down. Yeah. Like she's just amazing. You know, we've had we've got a partnership with Boiler Room as well. She went down there to look at an internship and apprenticeship. So it's just watching them grow and seeing them from this angry, confused young lady yeah. to being this assured, like just vibrant young person who's just working towards their dreams you know it's amazing and Tiani is just like literally there's so many other Tianis in London but are they getting that support mm. you know so they need that time because they they see that time and they receive that time as love mm. because they know that we yes we might be being paid but when we're doing above and beyond and taking them on trips to Manchester International Festival that's why I took Tiani and her her friends she couldn't believe it you know stayed in this hotel like view of Manchester all meals paid for, went I to watch Idris that. Elba's play uh, Tree, which was an immersive theater. And they were just like, yo, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe like I've left London and come to Manchester. Like I've never done this in my life. And yeah. just broadening their horizons, took them down to Cornwall, all these different things, you know? So we're just trying to give them experiences which can help them look outside and think outside the block, you know, or where they grew up or outside of London. Cause it's a lot of stress. So yeah, big up to Arnie. yeah. <laughs> 
I feel like this is a mentor and sponsorship initiative as well. Mm, mm, mm. Because not only are you pointing them in the direction that they should go, you're also like bringing them along the journey with you and letting them experience the possibilities that they can have in life, which is rare. Mm. And what you're doing is really helping to shape like the future of not just, I guess, young people in general, but underrepresented Mm. like young people as well. So this is... This work is incredible. Yeah, no, like, I love it. It's incredible. Mm. What can we do and what can people do to support, help, contribute, whether it's their time, whether mm. it's sharing, yeah. w- donating, whatever it is, what can people do? Yeah, I mean, there's once we have the community hub open, which is on the Ellsbury Estate, um, which is like a full circle moment for me, but that will be hopefully open in the next six to eight weeks. We're just working Ooh, on the lease now. Sweet. So final stages of that. Um, so there will be opportunities for people to volunteer. So you can check out us out at www.mentivity.com and check out what's coming up mm-hmm. in terms of our newsletter and opportunities to mentor and volunteer. Um, but also we're looking for more sponsorship, obviously in terms of the corporate sector. So mm-hmm. if there's anyone out there that's looking to find initiatives to support young people, but also around apprenticeships and um, um, employability, if you can support us around that, that would be great as well. Yes, sharing our work, going on our, our social media and sharing what, what is going on. Mm. But really and truly, we want people to to come to the hub and, and share the expertise and, and pay it forward to the next generation. Mm. If there's things that you can do, whether it's one-to-one mentoring or you want to do CV workshops, anything like that. But also we've got programs that we're going to be running. We've got um, a football pitch, which was opened up by Reese Nelson, mm. um, literally three, four minutes walk from us. So if you've got anyone that wants to coach and run sessions, we want to have a Mentivity FC one day as well. Mm. So there's lots of things. We just want people to be close to what we're doing mm. and just to give time to other people's children because uh, that's massively important mm. because we all know it's what it's like. Um, yeah. You know, as a parent, you know, myself, my son's 17. Yeah, he respects me, but my voice becomes boring over yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell him, right, Cam, do this. Yeah. And he'd be like, all right, cool. And then someone would be like, Cam, you should try this. But yeah, yeah, cool, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why it's important to, to give time to other people's children. And yeah, just to get involved, you know, any way that you can and just reach out to us. Is there like a roster of support that you have saved at all? So like if someone was to say, contact you today and say, mm. I can help with CVs, I can help with LinkedIn development or personal branding. Do you have like a, a, a roster? Mm-hmm. Yeah? No, okay. we're, we're, in, we're, we're in the process of doing that. So okay. we have a, a facilities manager and a hub manager okay. sorting that all out. So we're just trying to get the community to dictate what they want to see from okay. the hub. So we'll have your normal youth club. We'll have a, a tech incubator hub too as well. So we've got, we're about to announce something with a couple of tech companies. Okay. So we can actually upskill young people with qualifications to actually okay. get into um, uh, careers in tech, which is massively important because mm-hmm. that's the next industrial revolution mm-hmm. and young people are going to fall by the wayside if we don't upskill them to get to that point. Mm. So that's going to be something massive as well. Um, we're looking forward to that. But mm. we will be creating a roster that people can, well, I can sign up then as a, as a volunteer, go online mm. and sign up and come and support, do the necessary checks, get the training from us and then Perfect. you'll be good to go. And you're international, aren't you? Well, we do some work in Zambia and Kenya. Uh, we're still formulating what that looks like. Uh, before the first lockdown, we were very close to having a, a massive uh, partnership with an organisation in Kenya, but we're yeah. still working on that now. So okay. we're trying to support young people in Zambia and Kenya um, in conjunction with other charities too. Okay, why Zambia and Kenya? Because I was actually, um, so it's a long story, but 
I did a talk in Edmonton in 2014. Mm. Uh, I did a, my first ever keynote speech. Mm. And um, there was a, a guy there called Maru Kam Kamisi uh, from Uganda, and he's a Nubian. And he was just so blown away by my keynote speech. He was like, you need to be in Africa. So he was working for four years to try and get me in Africa. And in 2018, I was invited out to do, do some scouting in mm. Kenya um, and went around a lot of youth projects and looking at the state of football and sport in Kenya. Mm. And I just fell in love with Kenya and its people. Um, so I've been to Kenya now five, six times really? since then. Yeah, and I'm just really keen to set up initiatives there um, because we have a lot of expertise that we can actually pay it forward and, and support people there um, in terms of what they want to do mm. um, and a lot of models that we can then bring there, but also for them to shape it the way that they need it. So there's lots of opportunity in Kenya and Zambia as well. I've done some consultancy for a charity in, in Zambia. Mm. So we're in the process of formulating that partnership as well. So we have to get closer to the motherland. We have to, mm. you know, for me, I love being there. Kenya, I will live there one day. I'm just in love with Kenya. The language, the culture, the food, the people. Just a beautiful place. So, yeah, Mentivity Africa will, will be happening um, at some point. I love that. Mm. And it's, de it's definitely needs it especially when i've gone back to um ghana mm -hmm. um i love ghana's like my kenya to you yeah, yeah, yeah. and and i'm like there needs to be some type of i don't know like youth hub and yeah. something very similar in that space as well mm -hmm. so to know that you have plans to launch it in africa is yeah. really promising it's mm -hmm. really good mm -hmm. um and as for like support and help and everything mm -hmm. if you want us to share anything mm -hmm. outside of this like in our newsletter yeah. so we've got a lot of professionals obviously in our community Amazing including myself so that yeah. can help with either CV development, LinkedIn, personal branding, all of that. Yeah. So just yeah, offline, I'll speak to Vash. And, yeah, yeah, come and down, tell her come down, come down. That is what I, this is my heartbeat. Like I love helping out and giving yeah. back in all ways. So. Yeah. And we'll be hosting events and things like that and screenings and stuff like that, exhibition well, and stuff good. to plan. So yeah, yeah, it will be a place and space for all and we want people to utilize it. It's a perfect location, just off the wharf road, easily accessible. Modern, new, fresh. It's really, really nice. And that'll be the first Mentivity Hub, the first of many. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, yeah. And coming down. Are you having a launch for it? Yeah, so we'll, we will announce that in due time. Okay. Once we get, in due course, once we get uh, the, the lease finalised. But again, okay, these okay. things take time. But okay. when we do open it, it's going to be a celebration. Music, food, everything. Amazing. Yeah. Well, say, it's like, yeah. you've done incredible like thank you so much thank on you. behalf of the community i'm sure you get thanks all the time <laughs> but it's so incredible it's like it's actually inspirational seeing you mm. here talk through what you've gone through mm. and despite your challenges being who you are today yeah. it's really it's great so yeah. thank you so much appreciate you thank you thank you no worries and thank you for coming on and talking to us as well yeah and yeah, yeah. anytime it's the first i'm sure and we're like, gonna do it again know, <laughs> of course, there, there'll be more conversations because we're gonna keep growing and we're yeah. gonna keep going on this journey so for sure, for there'll, sure there'll be much more but thank you so much no i appreciate you having me on that yeah been enjoyable thank you yeah and then also i always get to do this don't worry i haven't forgotten everyone before you leave i know you've given some good words mm. but everyone has to leave like food for thought you know like mic drop words mm-hmm What's your mic drop words? Ooh, see, I kind of <laughs> gave it away already. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. No, I, I know he did, my, but... My, you know what I'm going to say? And it's something I didn't get to touch on. Um, but am I saying it to the camera or say it to you? Say it to the camera. Um, I will say what you have to do, especially as parents, we have to in, invest in ourselves via therapy. We have to rehabilitate. Um, I undertook therapy four and a half years ago and I didn't really do it for me. I did it for my son in terms of what I could do for him. And it's been the best investment I ever made. And there's lots of things that we are all recovering from. 
but we have to pay attention to the flaws and the traits that no longer serve us so that we can be better for our children and better for our you know partners or whatever it may be but that's what's helped me on that journey and helped me to be the success that i am today so if you can invest in therapy or any type of support do it I like to clap, so I'm clapping. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Zay. Thank you. And thank you for listening and watching this podcast episode. And remember, you cannot be selfish with this content. You've listened to it. You've enjoyed it. You've taken notes. Share it. Okay, thank you to yourself. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. Love to you all. And I'll see you all on the next Black Create Net podcast episode. Take care. Bye.